you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Today, we are in the book of John, back in the book of John, chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. John 5, 19 through 30, if you wouldn't mind turning there. And as you do, I just want to say thank you again to all the, the men who contributed and participated in the preaching cohort this last spring and then ultimately preaching uh, in the month of July. You guys did a great job. I'm super thankful for you guys. And, uh, and now I'm thankful that we, have, we can uh, grow the depth of our preaching bench. And uh, it's always fun to share the pulpit and see how the Lord works through, through others. John 5 19 through 30. Have you ever heard the expression, who died and made you boss? Right? Maybe from a sibling at first. Like, who died and made you boss? Or you're on the playground and you're trying to control the game and somebody's upset because you want to be in control of the game. And it, and it really, it's a, it's a contentious statement that comes when one person assumes a position of authority over another person though that position has not been rightly given. You see that in the Old Testament, as kings would die, and then all of a sudden, the son of another king was like, hey, I want to be the king, so he rises to power and kind of appoints himself to be king, right? So his dad died so that he could be king, but nobody else appointed him king. And you kind of see that just kind of playing out in society, right? We all kind of have this autonomous authority about us, and we kind of like to rise to that occasion. Well, the issue of authority isn't just some new modern issue or problem. This is a very ancient problem. Even in today's story, the Jews, John just recognizes them as the Jews in the story, but these are the religious leaders that John is talking about. They had authority issues. They kind of came to Jesus angry with this, who died and made you boss sort of mentality. Because Jesus was claiming to have some authority. And he claimed to have some authority essentially over the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a big deal. It's the seventh day of the week. It's Saturday. This is the day you're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to do anything, any sort of work. And Jesus apparently really went out of bounds by healing an invalid on the Sabbath. Healing this man. So much so that the Jews of the day were angry because Jesus had performed a work on the Sabbath. The Jews had created these extras, these extra laws that went outside of even the laws of Moses regarding the Sabbath to the point where there was all these regulations, all these nuances to the law of what was required and what was allowed and what was not. And they completely missed the healing of a man because Jesus wouldn't fully obey or submit to every nuanced detail of their version of the law. That tension between these Jews and Jesus, this issue, this tension of authority, isn't necessarily unbelievable to us today. If Jesus were to manifest Himself here right now, in Western society especially, claiming authority, we wouldn't necessarily bristle up. We wouldn't bristle up because we would say, hey, as long as you don't tread on me, I won't tread on you. I do me. You do you. We're all good. We're all our own little autonomous authorities just walking around. We like to have control. And look, Jesus, you can have some control too. You can do whatever you want on the Sabbath. You do you. And me, I'll do me. So we generally get that idea. And we're okay with millions upon millions of individuals being autonomous and authoritative in their own spheres of influence, their own, their own ways, as long as it doesn't impede upon us. We have authority issues. I mean, I, I know yesterday was the last day of the Olympics, but if you've been watching the Olympics at all, you see even authority issues bleeding there. You have it all over the competition, and not just among the U.S., but also just among the nations. You have some Americans protesting the U.S. flag, 
making a statement against systemic oppression and power structures. You have other Americans celebrating America as the most wonderful nation on earth. Then we see Olympic rules having to be reshaped to pander to gender identity. We saw this with a New Zealander weightlifter, a man identifying as a woman. And so we had the individual authority of a person challenging the authority of the Olympic competition and eventually having to bend to that person's personal authority. Went beyond that even. There was a a woman Olympian from Belarus who challenged her coaching and her country. And in, in, in result of doing so, her country began to crack down on her, trying to force her to get on a plane to come back to Belarus to punish her. She was speaking out against that oppressive regime. Regime, excuse me. And so now, in that process, she now is sitting under the authority of the Polish government, getting, uh, uh, having been uh, sanctioned asylum. And her husband has fled to Ukraine so as to spare his own life. Authority issues everywhere, right? Other events we see in New York, there's the proof to require vaccines to re-enter society. You see that's becoming a big, big issue. President Biden and Governor DeSantis down in Florida just going at it all over social media. It's kind of funny to watch, but it's basically like, Get out of the way. And DeSantis is saying, I'm not getting out of the way. And so you see the clashing of two authorities even on a public level. Yesterday I was listening to another news story and I was beginning to hear the story of a father up in Minnesota. He has joint custody of a child, a son, and this father is going to sue a pediatric gender clinic in Minnesota because this place is the place where his ex-wife took their son, without him knowing, and that clinic diagnosed this nine-year-old child who has autism with gender dysphoria and recommended that this child undergo irreversible surgery to accommodate their transgender identity issue. The father was furious because his authority was overstepped by the ex-wife and also this pediatric gender clinic. One more level, just to make it fun. A good start to the morning. We see here even in Springfield, the Springfield Library, public library, created an incentive for those who have received vaccines that if they show their proof of vaccinations and they do have late fees, their late fees would be completely removed, completely forgiven. And so the intent is to try to incentivize something they believe is good, but what is happening is a citywide shaming of individuals who either medically or freely choose not to get the vaccine. So what's happening is the authority of the library is being used to celebrate some while shaming others. We have authority issues. And look, we're going to continue to see power and authority, whether on a government level or an individual level, be challenged and tried. The biggest hurdle is going to be less of the authority outside of us and more of the wrestling of the authority within. That's really where most of the war is. We want power. We want our freedom. We want to do what we want within our God-given rights and for them not to be infringed upon. And those things are good. And yes, they can be God-given, but here's the problem. We live in a fallen world, a sinful, broken world. And so what happens is we tend to take those things that are God-given and good, turn them inward, and they end up becoming wicked and evil in their practice and expression. And so the issue of authority and who we should bow to, and who should should bow where, is always going to be in this state of unrest until the Lord returns. And so some of us, just by hearing some of those stories, or maybe you've already heard them, it kind of made your blood boil a little bit. Really frustrating to hear those things. And it is. I mean, honestly, there's some things 
that I heard in the news that just made me bristle up. And trust me, I have limited my news intake for that very reason. And I don't even get on social media really anymore. But it causes me to ask the question when I hear this, just being real, what does the authority of Jesus have to do with any of these things? Where's his authority? How does his authority direct our thinking, our living, our responses to these other authority issues that happen all around us? I mean, is Jesus really in a position of full authority and rule right now? I mean, really, is he? And maybe you're asking, then why doesn't he intervene and stop these wicked and evil injustices and abuses of power of authority that are happening, happening all around? And those are real questions. And honestly, we're limited in our capacity to understand the mystery of it all. But I do want to give us some comfort. Jesus is reigning and ruling right now. As chaotic and crazy and messed up as things are, He is reigning and ruling right now. He has all authority and all power right now. And everything that is happening is happening for a reason that is above our understanding. Secondly, Jesus has lived as we have lived in a world of conflicting authority issues. Jesus in today's story is dealing with authority issues of the world coming around him. He gets it. He understands. It's not like he's so far off from us. And third, because Jesus lived under authority as the authority, you hear that? He lived under authority as the authority. We can then trust in his example. We can follow it by faith. And we can trust that God is ultimately good. Right? So Jesus clearly knew his position of authority under the Father and his role under human authority in the day. He was aware of it. And where did he know these things? He knew them from his eternal relationship with the Father and his submission to his divine role within the Trinity. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. He is not the Father. He is not the Spirit. He is the Son of God. And His position is a good position. And so He understands who He is. Never did Jesus try to be the Father. Never did He try to overthrow the Father. Jesus' authority, as difficult as it will be to comprehend this statement, was not alone to assume that authority. It was given to him by the Father. And it was God-given. Jesus had to exercise authority for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And so that's really the main thesis of today. God-given authority. God-given authority. And so here's the accusation, if we recall from the last time. The accusation was that these Jews had come and they started to begin to think that they wanted to kill Jesus. They were seeking to kill Him in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 18, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, it said, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. That's chapter 5, verse 18. So this was the biggest question of the Jews of the day. It was authority. Jesus challenged the exercise of commerce within the outer courts of the temple. When Jesus flipped the tables, right, and he chased all the money changers out of the temple arena, Jesus came in really acting out of a position of authority, right? And then he goes out, not only from there, he goes out and he heals people, and he heals people on the Sabbath. So Jesus is completely defying the understanding of the law in the minds of the Jews of the day. So the Jews want to know, essentially, by what authority is he doing this? Who died and made you king, right? And so they're not concerned. Listen, the Jews are not concerned about the Gentiles being able to come into the outer courts and worship in the temple. That's what Jesus was flipping tables over, because they were pushing the others out. They were only allowing the Jews in and pushing the Gentiles out. But Jesus is saying, include the Gentiles in here. 
right? They weren't worried about the Gentiles' worship. They weren't worried about this man who was an invalid who could now walk and worship. They didn't care about him. They only cared about Jesus and his ability to exercise authority when it was not lawful, apparently. And so what we have here is a unique interaction. When the Jews see Jesus will not submit to their authority, what do they do? They seek to kill Him. But here today, when Jesus sees that they are misunderstanding authority, Jesus responds by giving a full and clear explanation. Jesus in this passage won't seek to murder them, seek to kill them or plot to kill them like they're plotting to kill them, Him. He's not going to white-knuckle His way through, but He's going to carefully lean in with full confidence into the authority of the Father. Jesus, at the end of it all, part of His goal, His aim, is to win these people over. And so Jesus responds to the Jewish authorities by building a case that He is the direct agent of the Father's good work. And so we're going to see that in four different ways, and we'll walk through it together. Let me read, I know it's a long introduction, let me read uh, verses 19 through 30 as a whole, and then we will get into seeing how Jesus builds his case. So Jesus said to them, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives him them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So this first case of God-given authority, Jesus' God-given authority is to do what the Father does. Verses 19-23. through Jesus' God-given authority is to do what the Father does. To do what the Father does. So he said to them, truly, truly, and that statement, truly, truly, is amen, amen in the Greek, or as we often talk about when you're in conversation with somebody and they go, I'm going to be honest here, right? (laughs) As though you mean you're never honest, but the idea is pay attention, listen up. I'm telling you something that is absolutely true. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And what does this tell us about the Father? The Father is active. He's not idle. He's not taking a nap. He's not snoozing. He is actively doing something. And so the foundational argument for Jesus in His authority is His defense going back to the work of the Father. It's founded upon Mimicking, imitating, doing exactly what the Father is doing. So Jesus is not doing this on His own. He's not saying His actions are His own. They're in isolation. He's just kind of 
taking a guess at what he should do or not do. No, he's looking at the Father, seeing what the Father is doing, and then doing it himself. And so Jesus, in his response to these leaders, he's not going point, counterpoint, in some sort of uh, debate format, but he's just speaking plainly and confidently and easily to them. He's offering a defense for what he's doing. And that's, that can seem off-putting as we think, you know, Jesus doesn't need to reason with anyone, especially with anyone who might be abusing their authority. Because after all, these authorities are plotting to kill him. But we have to remember, as I mentioned a minute ago, some of these leaders are leaders that Jesus will end up saving. One person we know already, Nicodemus. So Jesus isn't coming in to fight. He's not just coming in to throw down. He's coming in to win over even people who want to kill Him. So for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him. D.A. Carson puts it this way, that Jesus is exegeting or narrating the Father. In other words, whatever Jesus is doing, if you want to know what the love of the Father is, look at the love of Jesus. You want to know what the mercy and the care and the grace of the Father is? Look at Jesus. You want to know how to deal with hard situations? You want to know how to um, uh, deal with conflict? You want to know how to or how the Father deals with His wrath? You want to know how the Father deals with truth or how He speaks truth? Look at Jesus and see what Jesus is doing. Everything that Jesus is doing is an exact, exact rep, uh, replication of the Father. So He's expounding on the Father's nature, on His character, and He's doing it with His life. And Jesus says, look, there's going to be greater works that He will show Him. So if you think that the healing of the invalid was something to see, you must understand there's going to be something even greater and the greatness that is about to come your way is going to have a purpose and that purpose is so that you may marvel. Jesus speaking to those who are plotting to kill Him, there are great works that the Father is doing that I will do and it has a purpose that you would marvel. And here's how they will marvel. 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. There is no question in the mind of the audience of Jesus at that point that the Father has authority to give life or that the Father has the ability to raise up from the dead, to raise others up from the dead. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2.6 The Lord kills and brings to life, He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So this idea and this understanding that God has the power to raise the dead to life is a familiar understanding, but the question is not so much about the Father, but about the Son. And so Jesus says, as the Father does this, so also the Son. So also the Son gives life to whom He will. So Jesus, His claim to give life as the Father gives life, James Montgomery Boyce says plainly, it is Him claiming to be God. When Jesus says that I can give life like the Father gives life, it's because He is claiming that He is also God. And that's the biggest struggle of the day. That's the big issue of the day. Everything Jesus claimed that He had authority to do would automatically put Himself in a position of claiming equality with the Father in His nature, in His character, in His authority. And under normal circumstances, that would be blasphemy, right? Right? but not in the case of the Messiah. And this is why they should have began to recognize Him. No one else has had such authority. No one else could have such power. Only 
the Messiah. But also, the Father's power to raise the dead assures Jesus to know that He will be raised from the dead so that He can give life to whom He will. Jesus will be pouring out life after He comes back to life from the grave. And so Jesus will note, Jesus speaks confidently as though this is already taking place. This is going to happen. Jesus has confidence and assurance that the Father can do this and will do this. And so Jesus will have the authority to give life to sinners. And not just a beating heart, but the very life that was given to Him by the Father for dying for our sins, or after He died from our, for our sins. Cannot speak. The life that Jesus gives is a resurrected life. A resurrected life. And this is what the first chapter in John tells us about, that the Word came. And He came to bring life. Bring life and light to men. And of course, this understanding isn't fully disclosed to the audience in this moment. Jesus is speaking plainly and simply here. In verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus didn't receive partial authority. He didn't receive it just for a time, but full authority. And for all time. And not only that, Jesus is not at all saying He's going to judge independently of the Father. He does it in tandem with the Father. As the Father speaks to Him, so He judges. And for this purpose that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This word honor means to attribute high status to someone by honoring. In this context, in John 5, the context for this, this word honor here, it is that Jesus makes the claim that He should be honored as God is honored. This is based on the fact that the Father has given him the authority to discharge the office or eschatological judge. Hence, men are under obligation to subject themselves to him and his judgment, one dictionary said. And so again, him taking this role as judge is also, excuse me, as judge and then him receiving honor is also claiming that he is to be honored not just as the Son of God, but also as God Himself. And so Jesus is directly telling those before Him that He has the honor that the Father has. And He too should be honored. And so breaking that sabbatical rule of the day is not breaking the Father's Word. It's not breaking the Father's will. Jesus didn't sin by doing so. He ended up breaking some man-made rules that were added on later, but He did not break the law or the will of the Father. Instead, Jesus has become the direct fulfillment of the Father's Word. This is why Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the fulfillment. So Jesus is not here mincing words. He's not fumbling all over His words like I am this morning. He is speaking plainly and clearly as he can about his authority. There's no question about it. He's not hiding it. He's not embarrassed. He's not afraid of what they're going to do. He is speaking truthfully. And so in the case of the Jews before him would be mistaken, he hits sharply upon his divine oneness of he and the Father. And it says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Jews think as they're standing before Jesus, plotting to kill Him, that they're standing up for the Father. Here's this man who's claiming all this authority and doing all this stuff. He is sinning against the Father. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I am one with the Father that you think you're standing up for. And ultimately, these these leaders before Him are going to find that they themselves are not honoring the Father because they are not honoring Jesus. But instead, they are finding themselves opposing the Father because they are opposing Jesus. You cannot bypass Jesus to honor the Father. 
That's why there is only one road to heaven, and it's through Christ alone. So Jesus is clearly making the case for his position of authority before the leaders, but he does so, listen, with humility. He does so with humility. If honor is to attribute high status to someone, then Jesus showed he never sought to abuse his authority, but paid tribute and honor to the Father in his works, right? He honored the Father, even in his conversation with these leaders. We, as believers, have a responsibility to honor the Son, Jesus, in the same way. And just like Jesus never used the Father's authority as a battering ram against sinners, but used it properly so as to honor the Father, so we are to use the authority of Jesus, not use the authority of Jesus as a battering ram against those around us, but as an opportunity to honor those around us. This is why we see in the Bible the Scripture calling us to honor authorities, to honor our spouses, to honor parents, to outdo one another in honor, to honor the body. And not for the purpose of abusing or beating down, but for the purpose of giving honor. And Jesus' greatest act of His authority was giving His life for us. That was His greatest act of authority. That was an act of honor towards us. We have been honored by the Son, if you think about it. And we did not deserve it. If anything, we're just like the Jews of the day, plotting to kill Jesus. Get out of my way, because you're messing with my world. But He wins us over. How are you using Jesus' authority in your life? Are you using it as an opportunity to dishonor governing authorities? Your spouse? Your parents? Others within the body? Look, there is true freedom when the world submits itself to Jesus. Man, I wish the world would. But we have a responsibility to show them that freedom by standing for truth and doing it with courage and humility. This is how they would know that we would come before the world in this way. Jesus told the truth knowing it would cost His life. He knew they were plotting to kill Him, but He still did it. And He didn't tell the truth with ungodly threats or ungodly insults. But He completely laid Himself down. He humbly spoke the truth. And, he, and when he spoke that truth, it is so freeing. His entire life, even his authority, was an exegesis of the Father to the world. It was an expounding of the Father to the world. It was a revealing of the Father to the entire world. Jesus used his God-given authority to make much of the Father, not to make much of himself. You see that? Even though he had the authority, he didn't use it as an opportunity to rob the Father. But instead, hey, let me tell you and show you everything about the Father. And if that's true, then we ought to be exegeting Jesus to the world. We ought to be expounding Jesus to the world. We ought to be showing Jesus to the world. That means our words, our actions, our decisions, our defenses are to show the world a clear, tangible picture of Jesus' love, grace, mercy, His work on the cross, and ultimately His authority. This means that you press every angle of your life into those areas every single day. How does this look like Jesus? How can I show Jesus in my marriage? How can I show it? At work, how can I show it as I interact with government? How can I show it as I go onto the social media platforms? How can I make much of Jesus? How can He increase and I decrease? Are you showing the world around you a picture of Jesus for who the Bible says He is? Or a picture of an authoritarian Jesus who rules with an iron fist? So how does your life expound upon Him? 
And in your life of expounding upon or exegeting Jesus, if you will, there should be a goal. And what is that goal? For the world to marvel in Jesus. That was Jesus' goal here. How might your life then be different with that sort of goal? How might it be different around those you honestly hate? And let's be honest, we all have people that when we hear their names, we have this bitterness or this hatred deep in our souls. But what if we, sh- we challenge that, right? What if we challenge that and gave a goal of how we think about them, that when we interact with them, what they see from us, what they hear from us, what they experience from us, might lead them to marvel in the majesty of Jesus. That's a totally different perspective, right? That motivation shapes everything and how you'll interact, how you respond to a text message, how you won't respond to a text message, right? How you send emails and don't send emails, what you say and what you don't. So what might your singleness, your marriage, your parenting, all of those things... What would it look like if all of those things were centered around that goal to have them marvel in Christ? So Jesus bases His defense on doing what the Father does and moves straight into the heart of words and actions. So verse 24, Jesus' God-given authority is to call sinners from death to life. Verse 24, Jesus' God-given authority is to call sinners from death to life. And so this is really, now we're beginning to see what he's going to do with this authority. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, Jesus in John 1 is the word made flesh. He is the full embodiment, the manifestation of God's word in the entire Old Testament. Here it is in the flesh, Jesus. And in Jesus, this word made flesh is the life of men. He is life. And so that theme in John 1, it still carries on even into John chapter 5. He is the manifested Word of the Father. And to believe His Word is to then believe the Father. So here it is again. My Word is the Father's Word. My Word is God's Word. I am God. And I love this. You'll see this starting here, but eventually uh, unpack some more in John 17, this idea of union. This idea of union. Rankin Wilborn, in his book, Union with Christ, tells us that faith is the way by which our union with Jesus operates and His life becomes our life. Faith is the way by which our union with Jesus operates and His life becomes our life. This is what Jesus is saying. Those who believe in Him, right? That is faith. Jesus' life is eternal and therefore by faith in Him, we receive eternal life. His eternal life is our eternal life then by faith. And that's where we begin to see the beautiful picture of union with Christ. Wilborn puts it more succinctly when he says, union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's a super simple definition. And it takes volumes to unpack it. But here it is. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. We just sang it. Not I, but Christ in me, right? I just said the words wrong, probably. Sorry, worship team. And so this is what it means to be in union with Christ. That you are in Him and He is in you. That you have His life. You are enveloped with His righteousness. Completely covered, saturated in it in every single way. But there are those who are not in union with Christ. The Jews in this story are not in union with Him. And they're trying to operate not in faith, but by works and upholding the law, upholding that Sabbath in their own strength, in their own power, not by faith. And the irony is, in an attempt to uphold a beautiful law of Sabbath, which 
deals with rest and not working, they end up working extremely hard, extremely hard to make sure that this man-made law, well, God's law plus man-made law are upheld to every single degree. And so when we take up Jesus' word by faith and are found in union with Him, that person does not come into judgment, Jesus says. Jesus does not bring them into judgment. Their sin, yes, has to be judged. But understand, it's judged in Christ. And this is the beauty that there's nothing required of anyone to come to faith or to be saved except that they have faith in Jesus. So here's another beautiful picture of the union of Christ. It is this, that you don't have to bear the penalty for sin. Jesus goes to the cross. This is the plan. I'm going to go to the cross and the judgment that is supposed to be poured out on sinners will be poured out on Him. And when you believe in Him, take Him up by faith, you don't then have to deal with that judgment. You escape that wrath because it has all been poured out on to Jesus on your behalf. The authority of the universe has died in the place of sinners. But Jesus says, for those who receive Him by faith, they pass from death to life. From death to life. And this is the picture that without Christ, we are all dead in our sins. We may be alive right now, our blood pulsing through our veins, oxygen filling our lungs, with uh, cognitive abilities to think and reason, yet we may be completely dead. Dead in our sins because we do not have faith in Christ and follow Him. This picture, I would say, is a picture of regeneration, of conversion, that new birth we saw early on. So Jesus is telling the leaders that there's a real transfer, a tangible exchange that takes place when the life of a sinner, when, when, in the life of a sinner when they believe. And what is that transfer? It's going from death to life. It's going from loving the things of the world to loving the things of Christ. It's going from living a life of being condemned to a life of being free in Him. No longer trying to fulfill the law of rest in their own power, but rather to live a life of rest, unified in the eternal rest of Jesus, knowing that He is the perfect Sabbath and rest for our weary souls. So it's important for us, church, to hear the Word of God, to know the true voice of Jesus, to know His true Word versus your own subconscious, or what someone else tells you Jesus' voice is. You and I hear Jesus' word through the Bible, and the Bible speaks His word clearly. When you take up His word by faith, you then find life eternal. You find union with Christ. He is your life. His life is your life. And if Jesus' Word is powerful enough to bring you eternal life, then it should be the very Word that you and I bring to bear in all of our life, in all the areas of our life. Christianity is not just a Sunday morning religion. It is a 24-7 lifestyle. All of God's Word for all of our life in every single situation. Is there any part of your life you think falls short of the life that you have in Jesus? And how might you need to speak into that area and remind yourself that Jesus gives you life in full? Not in part. Not just temporarily. But literally, in full. In every aspect of your life. So Jesus stood before His enemies telling them plainly, if they hear His voice and take Him up by faith, they will have eternal life. He uses His authority to call sinners to faith and eternal life. How are you and I using our God-given authority as ambassadors, if you will, and our freedoms to call sinners to faith in Jesus and eternal life? We want to see real change 
happen in our society, real change in our world. Look, people will not change outside of Christ. It takes the Gospel. It's a heart-level issue. And the only way a heart can change is through the Gospel of Jesus. And so our biggest and greatest work of all, and whatever it is, is being able to bring and use our God-given abilities and authorities and rights and freedoms to share the good news with sinners so that they might turn from their sin and turn to Jesus in every way. Jesus' authority to call sinners from death to life does not just stop this side of heaven. It carries into our final and glorious resurrection. Verses 25-29, to Jesus is God-given authority to call forth the final resurrection and judgment. To call forth the final resurrection and judgment. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you in 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour is coming, speaking of that final resurrection, that resurrection that is going to come at the end. And the hour that is now here, speaking of the resurrection, really the spiritual resurrection that happens now, that born again resurrection that happens now. And so regardless of whatever hour it is that we're speaking of, neither can be accomplished without the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You have to understand, Jesus has a work to do on the cross, and He must resurrect from the dead. If He doesn't do that, then we have no hope. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised." And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died in Christ, have perished. There's no hope for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul reminds us that our resurrection in the future, our resurrected life, is completely dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. That is our hope. And so Jesus has to obtain two important qualities to to perform this task of giving eternal life. And here are the qualities. He must have the life and the authority of the Father. He must have the life and the authority of the Father. 26, the life. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life life in himself. So Jesus' life is not some singular, isolated life, but it has been granted to him by the Father. Notice, the Father grants him this life. And it is an eternal and glorious life. And so Jesus would not even grant life to sinners apart from the Father. Because the life Jesus will call sinners to is a life that is had between He and the Father. So the life of the Father is stronger than death. It is stronger than death. And so strong that Jesus would even trust to give His own life knowing that He would not be left lifeless in the grave. But that the Father would raise Him from the dead. And so Jesus needs that life from the Father. He needs the authority of the Father, verse 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the authority of the Father is now the authority of the Son. And so as the Father passes out or uh, gives out judgment, it is given to the Son and the Son executes that judgment. 
And so Jesus being both the Son of God and Son of Man is significant for Him to give life to sinners and to judge the condemned. Listen, 1 Corinthians again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You hear that? Jesus is the man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So because of this mysterious and powerful granting of life and authority is accomplished between the Father and Son, it should not then catch us off guard or cause us to marvel when we see ultimately dead bodies rise out of the ground. Jesus has the ultimate authority. In verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. So which is harder to believe? A person's life has been born again, that is, changed from death to life? Or, while they are still alive, excuse me, or a dead man being brought from the grave back to life? Which is more impressive? A person who is dead in their sins and they are now alive in Christ Jesus, or a person who is dead in the grave and is now back to life with blood coursing through their veins? And so the point is this, that it should not cause us to marvel when we see the dead rise. We should marvel just as equally when we see sinners come alive in Christ Jesus. It should cause us to marvel so much, so much that when we do see the dead rise, if we, when we do, it won't throw us off and cause us to be shocked or thrown off in any way. But we expect it. Yeah, this is exactly what we would expect to happen. And so that voice that calls the dead to life, that calls us from our sins to salvation, that calls is the same voice that calls the dead from the grave. And so that word that sinners can reject on life on earth will not be able to reject, if you will, when Jesus calls them forth from the grave. They are going to rise when Jesus calls them to rise. And they will stand before Him in the judgment. And so His Word will call on that last day and the dead will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What we must understand here, Jesus is telling The leaders, I have all the authority. Even the authority in the final day is granted to me. And those who believe in me will have eternal life. But what he's not saying here when he says those who do good to eternal life and those who do evil to judgment, he's not saying that they do good and that has resulted in eternal life. It's not what he's saying at all. Their goodness or our ability to do good is a result of God calling us out and turning our dead hearts from death to life. And in response, we are then able to respond in faith and take up good works in response to what God has done for us. The fruit of our life is good works. Our good works does not grant us salvation. Jesus grants us salvation apart from our works. But in response to what He has done for us, we do good works. So when we rise and we come to be with Jesus forever. We are united with His works, not our works. His goodness, not ours. His righteousness, not our own. And because of that, we will inherit eternal life. But those who wanted to continue to do it their own way and try to do good in their own and try to fulfill the law in their own power, their works are not good. They are evil. They are not united with Jesus in righteousness. They are not united with Him in His good works. They are not clothed in His love and mercy and grace. They have rejected Him, and so therefore they are going to have to answer for themselves. And really, there is no way for them outside of Christ, and for them is eternal judgment. I think some of us would marvel less in the resurrection of the dead and marvel more in the spiritual resurrection 
of some of our politicians or mainstream voices of the day. Let me, put it, let me give you an example. Imagine, okay, you're going to have to think really hard right here. Imagine if President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump began to follow Jesus and openly repented of their sins and reconciled with each other. Imagine if that happened, right? What would the, if they both began to come towards one another and admit how they've openly wronged each other, how they've openly wronged maybe the American people or even their own families, how do you imagine that live stream coverage to be? I mean, I imagine it would just be, everybody would be in awe. You could hear a pin drop because people would not be able to believe what it is they're seeing and hearing before them, right? We would marvel in that. I think it would be less shocking to see a dead man come out of the grave than to see that, right? But it goes to show the amount of venom and hatred we have for one another and the amount of rage we have towards those in authority and who try to mess with us. We end up viewing them really as unredeemable. Unredeemable people. People that God is unable in His power to actually save or change. We put limits on God. But what if we saw them come to faith and it made us smile because ultimately we saw God answer our prayers for them, assuming we're praying for them? What if that was the mindset? Church, we have the assurance of a future resurrection. We have the life, the life and the authority of the Father has been given to Jesus and given to us by faith. Our lives now should reflect the, this eternal reality and our expectation of God to do the unimaginable should not shock us or take us by surprise. We should marvel in, when we look across the room, we should marvel in how God has taken us from death to life. That should cause us to stir our affections and our heart towards one another in that way. And it should not surprise us that God can seemingly do the impossible and even save wicked people. I mean, we saw that. I was talking with, this, with Adam this last week. Roe v. Wade. Jane Roe, who took the case to the Supreme Court. She's the one who basically had, uh, you know, had this whole law passed of abortions. She came to faith in 95. And she went back to fight against the very law that she helped put in place. And of course, it has not been overturned. But I imagine for several decades, there were believers going, I can't believe this woman. This woman is unredeemable. There's no hope for her. She's a murderer, blah, blah, blah. But look what God did. Look what he did. We need to begin to see how God actually works and what he can do and marvel in that. And last here, verse 30. Jesus' God-given authority is just. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. He's telling the audience that he has authority to judge, but he has to listen as well. Jesus says, those who hear me, hear my voice, have eternal life. But Jesus is also demonstrating he has to listen. He's listening to the Father. And as he hears the Father, he executes judgment. And so this is a beautiful form of humility of Jesus to the Father his unique relationship with the Father that no one else could possibly have. You must be the unique Son of God. And so as the Father speaks holy justice, so then the Son executes that holy justice. And as a result, he says, my judgment is just. Jesus' judgment is just because it will be proved through the cross and the resurrection that his claim to authority is true. Jesus is trying to vindicate Himself here. I have authority, and it will be proven in the cross, in the resurrection. And so His judgment is just also because He does not seek His own will. He's not seeking the will of Himself, but He's seeking the will of the Father who sent Him. And so the just nature and will of the Father, listen, 
was 100% dependent upon the humble obedience of the Son. The Father was 100% dependent upon the humble obedience of the Son. Jesus' just judgment is not just about Himself, but it's about the glory of God the Father. Listen, Romans 3 clues us into this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we've heard that, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to, receive, to be received by faith. Here it is. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins, meaning God, in the Old Testament, we sometimes ask the question, are the people in the Old Testament saved? They didn't see Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. How were they saved? God had passed over their sins. He didn't punish them for their sins. He didn't punish Abraham for his sins. Instead, fast forward, he waited until Jesus would come. And at that right time, he punished Jesus for the sins of Abraham, for the sins of Moses, for the sins of the saints of the old. And he did this so that he might be deemed righteous. He might be deemed righteous. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me break it down some more. So the Father had this eternal will and eternal divine plan to forgive the sins of sinners. This was in His plan, His playbook from the very beginning. And He did it and it wasn't a risk for Him. It wasn't a gamble. It was assured. It was as assured as the Father is. And so ultimately, it would be this beautiful divine orchestration of God working out His salvation. And the only people waiting on bated breath are you and me, because we are not God. But the Father passed over former sins of those in the Old Testament, like Abraham, so that their sins would be rightly paid for. Because Okay, God, you passed over the sins of Abraham. You're not a just God. You're not a righteous God. You're not doing anything about these sins. You're just allowing these saints to just continue sinning. But God's saying, no, at the right time, my righteousness, my justice will be vindicated through Jesus. And so Jesus comes to die. He dies for sinners. But that's not the number one reason. Jesus comes to die on the cross to save sinners, He comes to prove that the Father is just and righteous. It's equally about the, the, the righteousness of God as it is about saving sinners. And so, because of that, because Jesus does that, the Father then grants Jesus the ability to justify sinners before the Father Therefore, making him a righteous judge. So his ability to judge is based on that beautiful divine will and plan of the Father to save sinners. So Jesus, his authority as judge is going to be just. It will be vindicated in just the simple, pure, beautiful act of the gospel that Jesus would die as a propitiation for our sins, as a sacrifice for our sins, as an atonement for our sins, to prove that God is not a liar, but He is righteous and good. What can anyone say on Judgment Day? You go stand before Jesus. I promise I'm about done. What can anyone say to Jesus, standing before Jesus, the judge, hey, look, you're unfair, you're selfish. You can't possibly understand. We have the most unselfish God here in terms of His love towards us. I mean, He humbled Himself. He gave of Himself to not only die for the sake of the glory of the Father, but for the sake of us that we wouldn't have to die for our sins, but we would be alive forevermore. And He didn't just do it from on high. He did it as a human being. He came down He was created, if you will. The uncreated became created for our sake. What do you have to say before the judge? How can you condemn Jesus and say He's a wicked and awful judge? You can't. There is no judge like Him. His judgment is just. 
His supreme authority is given to Him in response to a supreme act of humble love and sacrifice. We often forget about this with Jesus. So as we go and engage the world, we, we need to keep in mind that through Jesus, that though Jesus is supremely powerful, He is also supremely humble. It's easy to get up, caught up in the kind of that, yeah, yeah, my dad can beat up your dad, right? Like, my Jesus is greater than yours. But Jesus doesn't lead in that example. He's not like puffing up his chest and trying to prove himself. So I want to f- call you to follow in that example of Jesus' authority and humility. He would prove his right to judge by laying down his life for his enemies. Are you willing to lay your life down for your enemies? Are you willing to do that with the hopes that they might marvel in Jesus? Remember, you and I are not Jesus. We're united with Him, but we are not Him. We must surrender ourselves to His will, to His commands, to His word, to His way of life, and trust that He is going to rightly judge. There are a lot of things this side of heaven we want to see changed. A lot of, thing, a lot of injustices that we want to see turned over but we may not. We may die before we can even see that happen. But we have to trust that Jesus is just. If the world were to look at us and say, who died and made you boss? I think it should be in our response to our call to make disciples. We respond confidently with authority that we are called to go and make disciples. Not beat people down, not tell them what to do, but to make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and He commanded us to do this. And as we go, we call sinners to repent, believers to obey the commands of Christ, and we are operating under that authority that is ultimately not our own. It'll rub the world in a wrong way when we go out in obedience. But that's okay. We, but we, may we never be accused of trying to assume the authority of Jesus and His Word for our own. That makes sense? We're called to point others to Him, not point others to ourselves. We don't ever get mixed up on who has the ultimate authority. We know who has the ultimate authority. Jesus wasn't mixed up on it, neither should we. We know who, who has the authority because the Bible tells us. But we also know that it is the supreme authority that has died for us in order that we might live. And that's the wonderful reality of the gospel. And that is where we are to operate as Christians. That is good news to a broken world. So let me remind you again. Jesus' God-given authority was to do as the Father does. To call sinners from death to life with the expectation He will call both sinners and saints forth in the final resurrection and judgment and to do it with the full authority of the Father.